Good morning. It's great to see you guys, and uh, on this happy Memorial's Day uh, weekend, I hope that you guys have had a, a, you've got some great plans coming for tomorrow. We are in a series called Freedom Bound, and, and we are discussing and having a conversation about freedom itself. For those of you who are guests here uh, this morning, my name is Greg Harris. I'm the senior pastor at Olive Branch, and what we've been doing is we've been actually discussing the fact that last, starting last week, the, the fact that when freedom is given complete and full vent, when you have no restrictions to your freedom, it actually becomes its own form of bond. And so how do we live in a world of freedom? How do we enjoy freedom? In fact, um, as Christians, we, we consider freedom a very, very important aspect of our faith. But that may be confusing because some of us may be going, wait, really? You guys think of it as, as a, a good thing because you've seen enough Christians or you've talked to enough Christians or maybe you've lived with Christians in your life. Well, honestly, it's all about rules to you. And it sounds like it's all about rules. Don't touch this. Don't eat that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And there's all this stuff. Maybe, maybe Emo Phillips, uh, a little uh, a bit uh, kind of fits well for you. There's this, um, talks about the fact that he walked upon a bridge in New York. And there's this guy who looked a little bit like a horse to him. He walked up and just said, say, why the long face? And the guy is kind of feeling really depressed and saying, I'm going to throw myself over. And he's like, whoa, 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 you don't need to do that. You believe in God, don't you? He's like, oh yeah, and God has a purpose. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, okay, good. Um, so are you Jewish or are you Christian? And he says, oh, I'm a Christian. He's like, oh, me too. Oh, are you, um, are you Baptist, Lutheran? He's like, oh, I'm Baptist. He's like, oh, me too. Northern or Southern Baptist? And he's like, oh, I'm a Northern Baptist. He's like, oh, me too. Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? And he says, oh, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist. He goes, oh, me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He's like, oh, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. He's like, oh, me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region? Um, uh, Declaration of 1889. Are you uh, the Northern Conservative Baptist uh, Great Lakes Region Declaration of 1972? He's like, oh, 1972. And he said, die, heretic. And I pushed him off the edge. <laughs> but his joke hits at something. There's something about Christians where we, we appear to nitpick and, and poke at all the minor little details. And, and then there's those other ones that uh, kind of all came from my, my, that I learned from my wife and other places from people who went to Cal Baptist about Baptists and stuff. And it's kind of this whole kind of jokes about, you know, we don't dance, we don't chew, we don't go with girls who do, that kind of a thing. And then there's the old, the old and, and this is kind of odd one, but it's like, oh, why don't Baptists have sex? It might lead to dancing. And that's the... <laughs> And that's the thing, right? There's all these rules, and they're weird rules. And maybe you're here as a, not as a Christian and not as a Baptist, and you're sitting here going, what's up with these rules? Why do you guys live like this? Why do you say no and no, and you tell other people to do no and no? What's up with this? Well, honestly, that's what we're going to look at. Because we as Christians, we believe, according to the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 4, we are free from law. We are free from the rules, that we are not going to be condemned by them, and we don't have to govern every aspect of our life by, by law anymore. But at the same time, we're not free to run around and do whatever we want. How does this work out? Why is it that we appear to be so bound by law? And I'm trying to say, that's not the right way to live. In fact, we'll find the answer right here in Romans chapter 13. And we're going to look at verses 8, actually all the way through the end of, end of this chapter. So we're just open, if you want, you can open a Bible up to Romans chapter 13 there. And Bibles under seats are available for you. It's on page 948. And you can grab that. And I, feel free to join right along with us and you can keep up with what we're looking at. And so what we're looking at here is this 
conversation about the fact that we, in order to really live rightly in this world with our freedoms, have to learn to, to bind our freedoms up. And we have to be willing to bind those up for the love of other people and the love of our God. And that's really what we're starting to unpack in this text. In fact, he starts off with this idea that's pretty heavy and pretty intense. He says that we owe, as Christians, Christians owe people only one thing. We owe people love. Christians owe people love. Um, if you're not a Christian, you don't owe love, but Christians owe love to everyone. And it's kind of like, oh yeah, that's nice. I like that idea. I want to owe love, you know. But we, we need to pause for a second because honestly, love can have a very odd definition according to our culture. Uh, it's love in our culture is sort of a sentiment. Oh, I feel love. You watch a romantic movie. Oh, they're so in love. You go to a, a wedding. Oh, love. It's so beautiful. You see a baby and you're like, oh, I love the baby. You open pizza and the men are like, I love pizza. You know, that love has just all kinds of weird ways of being used. But love is not a sentiment. It's not just an emotion. As we've seen in the past, we need to define love um, especially in this case, in a far more important manner. I think it's better to look at how Jesus defined love than just to take a cultural idea of love. Because when we look at this, we see what the Bible means by love, and we see what it means when we owe love to everyone around us. And it's right here in John chapter 15. Jesus, last night of his life, he's working with his disciples and he's speaking to them and he tells them, this is my commandment. I'm going to give you one final command that you guys need to have, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on to define love. In fact, he does it in a way that's very Jewish. He says, here's the greatest form of love. Any form of love is going to reflect this. And he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The greatest form of love on the scale of love is self-sacrifice for the sake of another person's betterment. Because Jesus will, after this, then go to the cross, bear the sins and the wrath of God on himself for those who would, he would call his friends. That's kind of what he says from there. I'm willing to love you, to sacrifice my life for you, for these people, human beings that need salvation. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. But there are lesser loves, but they reflect the greater love. Love is reflected in this greatest form of love. So while I'm not going to tell you, hey, in order to really love somebody, you need to go die to, to show that you love them. But rather, when we see the reflection of this love in lesser forms, it is really the answer of you need to be willing to bind your freedoms, to, solve, to, to limit yourself, to hold yourself back, to die to yourself to deny yourself. These are all these different terms to tell yourself, I may have the right to do that, but I'm not going to. I may have the right to tell you off and give you the finger while I'm driving down the freeway because it's not illegal and you cut me up, but I'm not going to. I may have the right to get upset. I can, but, and I may have the right to, to do whatever I want, but I'm going to limit my liberty for the love of others. I'm going to restrict all my rights because I want to care about somebody else and I want to care about my God. And that's what's going on here. Jesus literally says, that's love. This love of restricting yourself for the care and the betterment of others towards God, not just anything that they want. I want to be better here. No, but towards betterment literally in life. That's love. And that is owed by Christians to everyone. 
In fact, it's interesting. We need to note this because I need to bend on the culture just a little bit more for a second because there is a strong, strong um, cultural virtue that exists that they call tolerance. And tolerance used to mean that I would say this. Um, I disagree with you, but I'm willing to hang out with you. So I tolerate you. That's what tolerance used to be. Tolerance is now flipped. It is now, I disagree with you. And you tell me you're not tolerant until you accept who I am and what I do and endorse me in doing so. That is the strongest definition currently of tolerance that we have. And I believe it's the opposite of love. That love is, as we will see, unfolds to be a very opposed to this concept of tolerance where we just let people go do whatever they want to do and, and enjoy it and go. But love becomes a difficult thing. In fact, it even becomes the kind of thing where we have to tell somebody at times that they can't do something or they shouldn't do something or this is harmful to their life. You go, really? Greg, I thought you were a Christian, man. And Jesus loved people. He didn't, he didn't, tell, he didn't really tell people off unless he really needed to and they were hurting somebody else. I mean, he didn't really dive into people's eyes and mess with And yet he did. It's a story, actually, it's fairly well known. It's found in three of the Gospels of a young man who is fairly wealthy and a ruler. We call it the rich young ruler. Hey, we're, we're creative. So anyway, the, he comes up and he tells him, hey, good teacher, what can I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Um, but here's what you can do. Obey the Ten Commandments is basically what he says. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, and don't covet. And he goes, I've done all those since I was a youth. I'm good to go. And then Jesus, after hearing this reply, the the book of Mark says it this way. And Jesus looking at him, what? Loved him. Note that. He loved him. This wasn't some mean Jesus ready to pounce on a Pharisee because he's super religious. No, this is a young guy looking to go to heaven, longing to be right with God. He says, hey, he loves him. And yet you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And everybody goes, yeah, that's a great verse. This is what all the rich people need to do. Give away all their money. No, 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 time out. Jesus is actually doing something very important in this text, and it's fascinating. He's leaning forward to this young man who he now has compassion and care for, and he pokes at his idol. At the one thing that he worships more than God, he pokes at it. At the one thing that was his identity, he pokes at it. He says, oh, you're the rich young ruler. It would have been shown by the way that he dressed. It would have been shown by the way that he approached with all his entourage around him. He was obviously rich, and he would have looked at him and said, all this stuff? Get rid of your identity. Give it away and then come follow me. I'm going to poke you right where you're not following God. And this is based not from Jesus hating him, not from Jesus being intolerant. This is Jesus literally loved him. Great compassion for him. Guys, love is not easy. It is not sentiment It is not good feelings, although those are included with love. It is primarily self-denial and the ability for us to love each other for the betterment. The ability to say, I'm going to deface myself for the sake that you can have a better walk with God. That you can know God better. That you can have a better chance in life. 
And that's what's going on in the text that actually is being referenced in these sections. That this love that we are talking about is owed. It's not earned. It's owed. Notice again, look down at verse 8. It says, Oh, no one anything except the love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so right here, this love is owed. And the word literally means to pay a debt. It doesn't mean you earn it. People don't earn our love. And this is what's really hard about being a Christian. You don't get to say, you've got to earn my love. Nope, there's no earning love in the Christian faith. We owe it. As if they gave us some great thing that we have to pay back. That's, how, that's what the word owe means. They've given us this great amount and we got to pay it back. We owe them love. And you go, like, well, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. We don't owe everybody out there just love. I don't even owe you guys love. You haven't given me something great, you know. Except for the fact that we owe it because the God who everybody in this world images has given us something great. In fact, the way John the apostle will put it later in his letter. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, after talking about Jesus Christ bearing our sins on the cross, we ought to love one another. That word ought is the same idea as owe. You can't get out of it. You ought to give love that we've, like this that we've been talking about. And it's given to everyone. They don't earn it. They don't deserve it. It is unconditionally given in which we would be willing to limit our lives, limit our liberties, bind our freedoms for the sake of their betterment. Now we can all go like, that's hard. That's rough. That's, that's difficult. Indeed it is. But here's the beautiful thing about it. All this weird stuff about, why do you guys follow all those rules? Why do you guys follow all that stuff? It comes out from love. In fact, as Paul puts it, he says, when we love others, we fulfill God's law. Look again down here at verse 9. Or at the end of verse 8, he says, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It's a fascinating thought. In my pocket is my keys, and normally I don't bring them on stage, but the point today I want to make is what's fun about my keys is that every, a lot of the other staff members, they got a lot bigger key ring than I do because they've got five or six keys to open a lot of different doors. Um, I have a grand master key. And so I can pretty much, I can open any door I want in the buildings here at the church. Love is the same thing. Love is a grand master key to the law. When you love correctly, you will fulfill every single command in the law. You'll love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength when you've loved him correctly. You will actually not want to call people names if you love them. I mean, how many of us are really going to go kill somebody that we love? Where it's like, I love you, bam! You know, that's not how this works. It comes from hatred, it comes from anger, it comes from bitterness. And that kind of stuff is built not from love. And so there's this return to love. And Jesus is saying, look, you want to not murder? You want to live this out? That's the extreme version here of what you can do to a human being. The lesser image of that is like calling people names. The opposite of that is love. When you love someone, you're not going to murder them. When you love someone, you're not going to steal from them, take their property. When you love someone, you're not going to 
lie to them either. This is important. This right here, this idea of not harming the other person, not lying to them or anything else, is why I think tolerance is the opposite. I believe tolerance lies to people. It says, regardless of what we understand about these things, go do it, you're free, live out your passions. Yet we know truths that show that sometimes these passions people want to live out in this world, whether it be lying, whether it be anger and bitterness, whether it be um, uh, playing around, leads to destruction and destroys families and lives and society. And we go, go live, be free, be happy. And we're lying to them. Love doesn't lie. Love can't lie. It can't send somebody into harm. It has to literally stand there as Jesus didn't say, this is just, I got to tell you this, things in your way. I care about you way too much. This is what makes love really difficult because when you start thinking about it that way, it doesn't covet. It doesn't sit around and get jealous and like, I want that stuff and I'm so mad that you have that. And that's what we're trying to help my kids learn in my house. That just because they got to have ice cream doesn't mean you get to throw a fit thinking that's going to give you ice cream. No, it's not fair in life all the time. But if we love each other, you're going to be happy for them. We're going to care about them. You're going to rejoice with them when they rejoice. This is tough because it doesn't do a wrong. It lives rightly. It cares about others. Love is not simple. It is not simplistic and emotional. It's tough. And so when we see this, How should we then as Christians who owe love to everyone, how should we really approach a homosexual who disagrees with us? Yeah, let's let's just start right there, right where it's hard. You say, well, I tell you what, love is first of all not going to call them names. That's why we don't use terms like the the F-A-G term, no way. It means a bundle of sticks that you burn on a fire. That's That's not what we want for people. We don't use terminology that's derogatory and cruel. We don't sit around and and yell. But at the same time, we don't lie. You can't lie. We have to tell the truth that the highest incidences of suicide is involved with this. The highest incidences of narcissism is found in this culture. We have to show what happens to people physically and the amount of disease and the, the average lifespan, how low it goes. It's what we would do for an alcoholic. It's what we do for our friends who are in drugs. It's what we do for pre- friends who are stuck in situations because we love them. The question is, do we? Have we brought them into our lives? Do we have relationships with people so that we see the good in them and we haven't defined them by a sin? You know, let's face it, we don't sit in here and go, oh, hey, the heretic's here today. Hi, heretic. Oh, look, the adulterer. Good to meet you. Hey, con man, liar. Oh, cheater. I mean, is that what we should do at church? Just give everybody a placard. Hey, hi, I'm the... uh, I'm the fool today. Okay, that's nice. Great. You know what? No, no, no. We, we, we see the good in each other, but we know the sin exists. And we encourage each other away from the sin and we promote the good within each other. Guys, they're human beings that we care about and that we, we are called to owe a debt of love to. No, that's not tolerance. And so your, your mind is fighting right now, if it's like mine, that is fighting off a cultural assumption, but, but that's hating people. No, it's not. You've had your words twisted on you. The terminology is to limit yourself to care for somebody, and that includes even telling the truth, which is not always easy. 
but it's loving. But you don't just bam them with the truth. Oh, it's an abomination, as I've heard many people yell and scream from pulpits. How do we deliver the truth with love? How do we make sure these are bound together? It comes from relationship. It comes from knowing. You know, when that happens, what happens is families in this church who are struggling with children who have ran away from their homes and rejected Christianity can stand up and say, I feel really bad and I don't feel like I can say anything in this church because I feel like I'd be judged. And now we can just say, you know what? No, you're not going to get judged. You're going to be loved. You know, I have a son who who struggles with same-sex attraction. You know what? We love you anyway and we would love to meet your son. We have people in our church who could rise up and say, I'm really wrestling with pornography. I'm really wrestling with drug addiction. I'm really wrestling with this. And we'd say, you know what? That is because we're sinners, but Christ can empower you. And the more we hide this stuff, the weaker we will become because we aren't living out the love that Christ has given us. It's true for every sin and situation in the church, no matter how controversial in the public eye. Our goal and our job is to owe this kind of difficult love to everyone. And second, we owe this kind of difficult love to our God. Bind your freedom every day because we love our Lord who is coming very near. I love how Paul puts this. It's kind of humorous to me. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. He's saying basically time is running out. You know, people run around right now going, ISIS, it's scary, right? I mean, like the global economy, that's like biblical stuff. You know, look at the, the, the stuff change, all the, all the environmental changes. This is crazy. It must be the end of the world. Hey, Jesus must be coming closer. You know, just, just to help you out for a second, every day you wake up, Jesus is one day closer than he was the day before. <laughs> He's always coming. It's closer today than it was yesterday. It'll be closer tomorrow. If you live to 85 in your life, you will have 4,400, I'm looking for my number, and 20 weeks to live. 4,420 weeks to live. Now, some of you guys are going, I only got about 2,220 left of those. Some of you are saying even less. Some of you got, I got 3,000. But when you put it in weeks, you start to go, whoa, because we get a week. We understand how long, how much stuff you can get done in a week. And what Paul is saying, your time is running out. Your weeks are growing short. What are you doing this week that's going to move forward the love and the good? It's time to wake up, to care about people. It's time to get into people's lives, then be a minister of the gospel, which is to love like Christ loved us, which is a self-sacrifice, and put, our, put, a, put a bind on our freedoms so that we can love them. Shut down our, our baseball games, our soccer games, our video games, our TV time and give those things away so that we can go, I care about you. I care about you. I care about you. I care about my neighbor next door and two doors down and across the street. I care about what's going on in their life and not the fact they stand out there and look weird at me. You know, we care about people. And suddenly it's now, he says, that we got to go. It's coming. The end is coming soon. Act now. Don't wait. How many more excuses can we produce? How many more ideas can we put aside? Um, I'll get to it next week. Well, that leaves you 2,999 weeks left. 2,998. 2,997. On down it goes. And so as we start to think about this, 
just start to look at this. He says, you know what? The number one thing you need to do is we need to do this. We need to realize our salvation is near. So verse 12 says, then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's be done with the sin stuff. Let's be done with the self-gratification. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So he starts with this. We need to bind our freedom. We need to put off the old sin. In fact, Peter will put it this way. The time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Hey, you've had enough time for that. Time's up. You've given enough of your life away to that. We don't need to give any more. That is not where the substance of living actually comes from. It's not where joy and peace and patience and kindness, that doesn't come from those. Love doesn't come from these things. Regret and hangovers and life problems and pregnancies and events that have scarred your heart and your soul and your mind have come from these things. That's what's come from these things. Not patience, not peace. And what's interesting is that he literally tells us we need to put these things off. We need to set them aside. And you have this list here. And some of these lists are interesting. Sensuality is one of those that we read the word and we're like, oh, cool, sensuality. What's that mean? It means to feel real good, right? No, sensuality is to give like to, your, to the craving of your senses. My eyes long to see, so I just pour into my eyes. We do that. It's called movies, television. My ears long to hear, so I pour into my ears. My hands long to touch and feel. I long to eat. Gluttony is all locked into this concept of sensuality. And our culture is a sensuous culture. It is so filled with sin. Now, it's not wrong to enjoy these things. It's to worship these things, to make them the center of your life. That's the danger. It moves on to say um, sexual immorality. Here, I'm going to solve a problem for you. People say, oh, Jesus never talked about this topic in, in, in sexual morals and stuff like that. Yes, he did. Actually, we know pretty well when you see the word sexual immorality in your Bible, if you want to underline that term right there in, in your Bible, that's fine. Even if you're just using one in here, if you underline that, just right next to it, Leviticus 18, L-E-V 18. Every, it's been shown every Jewish mind in the ancient world used the word sexual immorality, which is the word porneia, to reference Leviticus 18. That's how they did it quickly. They didn't go, we're going, you know, Leviticus 18, because they didn't have Leviticus 18. They didn't have those numbers like that. There was their reference to the list that is found in the law that is called sexual immorality. Everything on that list is what they're thinking of when they say that word. It's a very fast shorthand. And it's important for you to note that so that when you're reading your Bible, you know what they're referencing. I'm not going to read it to you, There are kids in the room. All right. So note that this list is there. And so there's other pieces here. Quarreling, jealousy, sensuality, drunkenness, orgies. We get what those things are. And so we bind our own freedoms and we focus on the Lord. He says this. It's interesting. Note verse 12. Look up. He says, put on the armor of light. In verse 14 then, he kind of refers to that word put on again. Put on what? Verse 14, say it out loud. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do you put on Jesus like clothes? Because that's what the word means. Put him on like clothing. Put it on the armor. We're like, yeah, I get armor of light. That makes sense. Yeah, put Jesus on like your jacket. You're like, what? It's like a Jesus skin jacket? This doesn't make any sense to me. 
Till you start get, diving into the concept of clothing in the ancient world. Clothing represented your status. Where you were in the pecking order was how you dressed. So if you were in the toga with the purple stripe, you were the emperor. You know? So that was showed off who you were and your status. Slaves wore one set of clothing. Peasants wore another set. So you could tell what rank and file people existed in by the clothing that they wore. It was their identity. Literally, Jesus, this is stating to us, put off your old identity. Take off your old clothing, the old status, the old stuff that made you who you were, and put on a new identity. Be so like Jesus that when people meet you, they think you're him. Wear his character. Wear his attitude. Wear his approach. Wear his way of living. Wear everything that he did. Brand Jesus everywhere on your life. So it's interesting, every time you'll dive in, as you start reading, if you ever do a study on this, just look at put on, put on, all the stuff that you're told to put on, you'll start seeing you need to put on the Holy Spirit, you need to put on the armor of God, you need to put on Jesus. You need to, and suddenly there's these lists of very good things that come out. And one of those that we know is called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law, it ends. Nine beautiful attributes that are actually describing Jesus' character. The kind of things we ought to do and put on. The kind of ways we ought to live and live out in our world. And this is a powerful thing when we start to think about the fact that inside of us are these desires, these longings, these cravings. Some of you are struggling because you want to party on the weekend and you want to get drunk because that seems like fun. And this is saying you're done with orgies. You're done with drinking parties. You need to put that off. Bind your liberty for the love of others and for the love of your God. Some of us are struggling with lies. Some of us are struggling with sexual immorality. Some of us are struggling with these things. He's saying, bind these things in your life for your love of God. Not a law, but you do it to yourself. Why? Because that's what it means to love. To love our God. In fact, Jesus put it this way. We need to deny ourselves. That's how it starts. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He literally draws on line. You want to start? The starting and following Jesus is by you denying yourself. This is not easy in a culture that tells you the opposite. Indulge, 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 indulge. And then take pictures of it and show everybody what you indulged in. He's saying, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Be willing to lose your life because in that is found life. Because what has this past stuff really given us? Come on. Some fun and a lot of pain. A lot of debt. A lot of struggle. Broken relationships. People who hate us. That's what this stuff has brought. The life that Christ is offering is one of love and peace and patience. And so he tells us right here, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't make provision for the flesh. So how do you deny yourself? How do you really do this? He says, stop planning. Don't make plans to satisfy your evil desires. And it's so easy to make those plans. Had a hard day at work. You walk into your house and you're thinking, man, that cake from that party sounds so good. And all the anxiety, you start funneling towards that beautiful creamy colored covered cake and you're thinking 
I shouldn't do this? I'll offer some to the kids too. All right, so (laughs) you've thought of a plan. You're planning to give indulgence to yourself. And you're planning this out. And we do this with our idols. We'll fool ourselves. Oh, just check out that. uh, that, I'll just take a little search on this thing. Oh, oops. I'll just drive. I'll show up at the right place at the right time at work where I know he's going to go. Oops, now I get to be mad at you. (laughs) We plan this stuff out to give indulgence and satisfy our cravings. And he says, don't do that. Don't start the plan. Deny the plan. Don't give provision. Instead, glut yourself in Christ is what I want to say. Don't put him on. Glut yourself in him. Enjoy. If you're going to give yourself fully over to something, just bathe yourself, drown yourself in how Jesus lived and what he did and how he loved. Is that hard? Is it dangerous? Absolutely. Is it worth it? I have yet to have met somebody who's fully done that that we don't honor. I mean, I don't know one we don't honor in our culture, as a hero or a saint who fully gave themselves to Jesus day in and day out. Isn't it, isn't it time we're done? Isn't it time we kind of put aside the things that we all think is supposed to give life meaning and actually pick up the one that does? Yeah, it's going to look like maybe to us that we have a lot of laws that we're living, but it's not because of that. It's not about rules. It's about loving God. It's about loving others. It's about giving ourselves over. It's being in the word and in prayer and not just getting it memorized, not just feeling in our hearts. It's literally do it, live it, walk it, put it on, wear it, let it be your identity. It's in this that we actually will begin to care for each other and unite together. The prayer that we have in this is this simple thing. Father, help us to live in complete harmony with one another. What do we mean by that? That we would be willing to bind ourselves from our freedoms to care for each other. That's living in harmony so that unified we might glorify you. That's our prayer. Hope you're praying that. I hope we're doing this together, but I want to challenge you guys to do that and that we would live in this harmony. Would you bow your heads with me, please? This morning, you may be here and being challenged by this concept of love, that it's, it's not easy, it's rigorous, it's self-sacrifice for the better of another. And you're here at church, to be quite honest, because um, we all know that in our freedoms, we've, we've, we've done wrong. We've got a list of wrongs behind us. And I, I believe that somewhere in your life, you're here, here at church because you'd like to deal with those wrongs. Because you know what? There is a day coming in which we face God And he will judge those wrongs and those sins. And we will be cast into hell because we will not be able to pay them off. And it's a real thing that we have to deal with. That God exists and he's going to judge and he's going to send people rightly to judgment because of the wrongs. But God didn't leave it there. And that's why the church exists. He instead, he sent his son Jesus to take our wrongs and die and bear our punishment. To take our hell for us so that we would be free to know God and live well. And you can go on a self-improvement plan and you can try to be a good person, but there's only one way to deal with the wrongs you and I have committed, and that is through receiving the gift God has given in Jesus Christ, who as a sacrifice takes our sins and deals with them finally. And you don't clean up to get that, and you don't make yourself perfect to get that. The mess you're in is the very reason he offers you the gift. And you're looking over your life, the broken relationships and the mess in your heart and all this stuff. 
Do you think it's time to be forgiven and time to deal with that with God so he can come into your life and lead you forward? That's what he offers. If you'd like to receive his offer this morning and trust that Jesus has taken your sin, that you can be forgiven and not cast into hell, I want to give you a chance right now to receive that. You just do it by sending me in your hand. You're saying, that's me. I want to pray. I want to receive that. I need to be forgiven. I'm going to trust this gift. Maybe it's been a long time since you've been there. You're saying, you know, I need to make this right. Then here's where we start. You start right here. You just kind of work on those wrongs. Just tell God, hey, this is the list of wrongs I've done. Once you've got those done, you're going to, in your mind, turn away from those wrongs to God. It's called repentance. You're turning away from the old. You're turning to him. Now ask him to take the wrongs and place them on Jesus. Ask him to give you that eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Now let him know that you trust that he's done that. And ask him to come into your life and to lead you through the rest of it. God, I lift up these people who are praying through this with you. Lead them, please, and show them that they have been forgiven. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.